Hi guys, I'm Christian Esguera and welcome to another episode of our Facts First podcast. Now, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's uh, Facts First with Christian Esquera. And don't forget to also subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Now, before I introduce to you our guest for this uh, week, let's lay down the facts first. So a few days ago, parts of the Philippines were ravaged by uh, a super typhoon. It's the strongest typhoon so far in the world this year. It's called uh, Typhoon Goni, but here in the Philippines, it was it was called Super Typhoon Rolly. Now, so far, at least 20 people have died because of this uh, typhoon. And uh, last Sunday, at the, at the height of the onslaught of Super Typhoon uh, Rolly, uh, President Rodrigo Duterte was a no-show during the briefing conducted by members of his cabinet, which led people to ask, Nasaan ang Pangulo or where is the president? which actually became a trending topic on Twitter. Now, was it the case of uh, a simple management style by President Rodrigo Duterte who opted to stay in his hometown in uh, in Davao City during that onslaught and that everything had been prepared properly by members of his cabinet and by the different agencies of government? Or did the president actually drop the ball big time, at least in handling this disaster, at least during the initial stages? I'd like to introduce to you our guest for this week. He's Professor Francisco Kiko Magno. He is the former chair of the Department of Political Science of De La Salle University. He was also the uh, director of the Institute of Governance of that same university. Thank you for joining us, Professor Kiko, on this podcast. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Okay, so we know what happened. It was a, it became a trending topic. People are asking Nasaan ang Pangulo at the height of the uh, onslaught of uh, Super Typhoon Rolly. Now, I'd like to ask you, was it a matter of leadership style uh, that somehow you could forgive your leader if he doesn't show up uh, before a big disaster? Or did President Duterte actually make a mistake by not attending that very first briefing base cabinet? I think uh, it's a matter of leadership style. And it so happened that it was uh, uh, also all day, right? So yeah. the president uh, went back to his uh, hometown uh, to pay tribute to his parents. But uh, considering that uh, the uh, disaster that uh, happened because of Typhoon Rolly, it's a uh, it, it was the biggest typhoon in the world uh, this year. So mm-hmm. it, is, uh, it is a big event. So uh, all over the world, the president or the head of a state is expected to be, to be present to direct the operations of the national government. But uh, certainly uh, the way our uh, disaster risk reduction and management law is uh, is established, uh, local government units are at the front lines in mm-hmm. uh, addressing the disaster. But certainly in any kind of uh, disaster management response, uh, it requires the coordination of the national government and the local government units. So it's also expected uh, by citizens that the leader is, is present to provide assurance, uh, considering that the prediction is uh, is already there that a big uh, 
big typhoon is uh, coming over. Mm. And the fact is that uh, the the scope of the typhoon is, is very broad. Uh, it covers a number of regions. Uh, if we consider the path of uh, typhoon Raleigh. Mm. If, so, so if I may, mm. if I may relate Christian to uh, another uh, another event, and this happened in the United States uh, uh, with respect to Hurricane Katrina, also uh, a huge uh, a huge uh, cyclone, it's Category Five uh, hurricane. Uh, at that time, the president was George uh, W. Bush. And he went on vacation in Texas. So it took him two days before going back to Washington, D.C. Uh, at that time, uh, compared to Typhoon Raleigh, the coverage of Hurricane Katrina was much more limited to mm. uh, New Orleans and the surrounding areas. But uh, then, then again, uh, the American citizens expected their... Uh, the president to also be available and to monitor the situation and also be present in press briefings. So, so it's a no-brainer that whenever there's a big disaster coming, you need to see your leader. You need to hear him say something, uh, in particular an assurance. So, so that reason given by the president that he was uh, basically on a holiday uh, for the All Souls Day and All Saints Day uh, weekend, was that a valid excuse? Well, of course, uh, you, you, you can always do that. But at the same time, uh, we are in the modern age. Uh, we are in the era of information and communications technology. So, in fact, uh, the president can actually uh, make himself available uh, through the use of modern technology. Like Zoom, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's like Zoom and other, other uh, technologies. So, so in short, he could have made himself available during that first briefing uh, via teleconferencing, via Zoom, for instance, right? Even if he was in Davao City at that time. Yes, uh, Christian, that would be uh, very uh, appropriate. Okay. Now, on the other hand, we know that uh, there is also a criticism on the president whenever he would speak every week, usually every Monday night to talk about the government's pandemic response. Usually the style of the president is quite rambling. Uh, it goes to toward many different directions whenever uh, he sits in front of the camera and speaks before a microphone. So people are asking, did you really want to hear the president talk before or at the height of the onslaught of uh, Typhoon Rolly? Or were, just, were his critics simply trying to take advantage of his absence? What do you think? I think Christian, uh, he should uh, would be well if he he read from a prepared uh, speech, uh, especially providing warning to the people. Uh, I think a, a short message would be uh, uh, very good uh, prior to the onslaught of the typhoon. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of leadership styles, I think I read this somewhere a long time ago. Uh, there's one perspective that a good leader is one who, in times of crisis, in times of disaster, uh, his presence could be felt by the functioning agencies of government or offices without him having to be physically present. Is that uh, actually a good approach to leadership in times of crisis? Or you really have to be there. You have to be present. 
of course, uh, the preparation, uh, especially because uh, the prediction has been made that the typhoon is coming. So it takes a lot of time for the preparation. So, so uh, you, you're not necessarily there at every point in time. But I think uh, what is uh, important here are the critical moments. So uh, uh, prior to the onslaught of the typhoon, you provide assurance to the people as well as adequate warning. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of iteration. You are simply repeating the warnings provided by your uh, science-based agencies like PAGASA. And uh, it, it makes sense that you, you repeat because that's how people uh, understand the message. Because sometimes uh, it's the proverbial uh, love before the storm. So you would notice it was very warm, it was not raining, just hours before the, uh, the landfall. But uh, precisely that's the kind of uh, uh, the messaging that you want, that uh, you should not be complacent. And that's the kind of characteristic of uh, an, an incoming uh, the start of a storm. Okay, now at this stage of his administration, do you think uh, his absence at the height of uh, Super Typhoon Rolly, do you think that could uh, hit or affect the popularity or approval or trust ratings of President Duterte? Uh, I think uh, it, it all depends on the, the, the response uh, because right now we, it's still an ongoing disaster. So uh, we, we should note that the uh, when we speak of disaster risk reduction and management, it, it includes the uh, disaster recovery and rehabilitation. So uh, I think what the president did was to do an aerial uh, survey. So uh, he actually listened to the criticism. So uh, he was able to, uh, to uh, make an aerial inspection. And I think he even uh, went to one of the towns that was uh, hit by the typhoon. Uh, so it really matters how the recovery process will happen. The, I understand that uh, people now are, uh, are very much in need of shelter, uh, food, uh, other necessities. So it really depends how the government is going to respond. And I understand that the local governments are asking for the support, especially those that were badly hit. Uh, the the, the uh, towns that were uh, hit uh, when the landfall, uh, uh, where Typhoon Rolly made the landfall. Mm. But, but at this stage in his administration, do you think uh, optics still matter for President Duterte? I mean, uh, or can he actually afford to uh, do away with certain conventions as far as the presidency is presidency is concerned, which he has actually been doing since 2016? Or does he have to be more sensitive this time in terms of providing the optics needed for the presidency? I ask this question because I remember in 2013, uh, the president was then, he was then a mayor of uh, Davao City. He was widely praised because of his response uh, to the... Uh, Super Typhoon Yolanda in Tacloban City. He paid a visit there. And I remember uh, he was teary-eyed when he, re when he returned to Davao City. 
and the people were saying this was how a leader should respond to such a big disaster. And at that time, the subject of criticism, understandably, was President Rodrigo Duterte and the Interior Secretary Marojas. So at this stage, do you think President Duterte should actually care about this optics or somehow he has really achieved this level of Teflon presidency that anything you do or throw against a president, it won't stick? Yes, uh, I, I remember uh, that event as well because uh, uh, he, was, uh, he was one of the first who responded to the cry for help of the people of Tacloban. So at that time, he was mayor. So uh, he, he was just uh, providing a kind of uh, a support for a fellow uh, local government unit. Mm-hmm. But uh, as president, he is expected to, to uh, be very uh, much on top of everything. So uh, the, uh, the, the call for the president is really to be uh, on top of the situation. So I guess uh, he's nearing the end of the term, his term and he's not, not running for, for uh, of course, he's prevented from running for another term. Mm-hmm. But uh, if ever he is concerned, it may be for the, the succeeding uh, uh, contender that he might want to support. Or endorse. But, uh, or, or endorse. Mm-hmm. But at this time, I, I don't think he is... Uh, it's it is frame of mind to uh, uh, to be very conscious of that uh, kind of situation. <laughs> okay, now let's go to the more important issue. Uh, I'd like to talk about the way our government or different administrations have been responding to disasters. We know that the Philippines is prone to a lot of disasters, an average of 20 typhoons, I think, visit the Philippines every year. So we're no strangers to uh, disasters and typhoons. But from a policy perspective, uh, what do you think? Uh, Do we have enough correct policies to better deal with disasters, not just after, but even before, more importantly? Uh, yes, Christian. Uh, you would notice that our our uh, policy before was that of uh, focus on response. So it's like an emergency mode type of uh, approach to disasters. So it's always some kind of uh, rescuing. Uh, uh, government efforts are all uh, focused on really saving lives, saving people, not too much on the entire uh, cycle of disaster risk reduction and management. Uh, so a uh, kind of wake-up call was uh, what you would note would be landmark disasters. Uh, let me cite certain events. Uh, 2009, uh, Typhoon Ondoy. So we don't have a national disaster risk reduction and management law yet, uh, which uh, provides a focus not just on disaster response, but also disaster preparedness and mitigation. So during that time, it was uh, President Makapagal Arroyo who was the president of the country. And that uh, uh, typhoon, Typhoon Ondoy, which uh, led to lots of uh, flooding in Metro Manila, it hit right uh, the very seat of uh, political, uh, seat of political power. Uh, because uh, Malacanang is in Manila. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
it showed the the gaps in our policy. So in fact, I would say that Typhoon Ondoy really triggered the passage of that law, which uh, enabled the country to really look at disaster at, as uh, something that, uh, or disaster management as something that has to be mainstream in the, in the policy process. And precisely that's what happened, uh, looking at disaster as something that it's not just uh, occurs, as you mentioned, uh, it has become a regular, uh, it's a regular fact, if you, you, may say, uh, you may use the term. So, which means that uh, you have to approach it with a, a certain uh, amount of regularity. So even the way you, you prepare for it, it's as if uh, it, it will really come at, mm -hmm. on a very regular basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, let me cite another event, uh, another president, uh, Typhoon Yolanda, which hit the country during the time of uh, President uh, Noinoy Aquino. So uh, we already have a law. We already have the National Disaster Reduction and Management Act. But then uh, we... It appears that even though we have the law, the capability to really use the law to its full force was not there. So even though uh, it was predicted that the super typhoon was coming at the time, so no matter how the people prepared, it wasn't enough because uh, the local government units were not using uh, enough of science, enough of technology. So I remember at that time, uh, people were evacuated. But uh, it appeared that some of the places where they were evacuated were, in fact, uh, ravaged by the storm surge. Yeah. So what they're saying is that uh, this was the first time that a storm surge happened in Tacloban. But upon a closer scrutiny, upon a closer reading of history, uh, newspaper accounts a hundred years ago showed that a storm surge happened. So what I'm saying, Christian, is that uh, there is really a need for uh, vulnerability studies, mm -hmm. a stronger risk assessment uh, 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 technologies. And uh, these types, types of risk assessments, they have to be uh, undertaken all over the country because the risk are not the same for every place. Mm. So uh, it depends on the type of disaster. Now we are talking about typhoons, but uh, we also have earthquakes. Mm. And we, we all, of course, we are now in a pandemic. It's a health disaster. And mm. these are disasters I may call Christian as uh, in the public policy literature, you call it uh, wicked uh, problems. Why do I say wicked? Because it's not just one agency or not just one sector of society uh, that has to address the problem. It has to be a whole of society. Mm -hmm. uh, so necessarily, you need uh, to connect all the aspects of the problem. Okay. So, so, uh, so the policy itself is comprehensive, but uh, it requires uh, a governance approach that is as comprehensive as the policy on paper.
Okay, so the law and the policy are there on paper at least. But between 2013 when Yolanda happened and now, uh, how much have we improved in terms of uh, implementing this policy in dealing with disasters? I think uh, we have improved a lot, especially local government units. Uh, whereas before, you, you, you might say that uh, there are just a few local government units and and let, let's say Albay, uh, Albay province is one of these provinces that are really proactive when it comes to uh, evacuation. Uh, in fact, it is said that the idea behind having a local disaster risk reduction and management office uh, came from the experience of uh, Albay. Mm. So, uh, but then, uh, over the years, uh, we noticed that local government units have applied the uh, Albay model of preemptive evacuation. Uh, also with the uh, Department of the Interior and Local Government providing a great push for local government units to really uh, follow the, the protocols. So in terms of, uh, of the practices, I think there, there has been a lot of uh, uh, progress, uh, but I think uh, there are still gaps when it comes to really using, for example, uh, hazard maps and using zoning uh, policies. Because in a lot of times, uh, you would notice that uh, people are actually uh, residing in very dangerous places. Mm. They are residing near the rivers. Uh, they are residing. And steros waterways steros uh, yeah and, and uh, by residing in those places they're actually putting at risk the entire a uh, bigger uh, area of the city mm -hmm. uh, because that's the nature of ecological problems if, if you uh, if you if you prevent these uh, natural waterways from functioning then you actually increase the risk of disaster so uh, I think there is a, really a need for these types of hazard hazard mapping, uh, inventory, uh, and then. Uh, By the way, speaking of uh, yes. geohazard mapping, I think that became uh, very important. The, the the importance of that became even more pronounced after Yolanda, right? And if I remember it correctly, there was a strong policy direction coming from the previous administration, wherein those living along waterways would have to be permanently relocated, right? Uh, would you know whatever yes. happened to that policy? Uh, I think the uh, proposal then was there was, should be a no-build zone. Uh, mm. Permanently, uh, right? Yes. Right? But, uh, yeah, precisely, I think uh, it, it has to be connected uh, with with other urban, uh, urban issues like housing. Uh, so many people died because uh, a lot of informal settlers were residing near the coastal areas. So uh, we don't have a national land use and water policy. Yeah. So uh, in the absence of a national policy, what's happening is uh, a, a comprehensive land use plan, which is uh, crafted by the local governments so what we have are uh, land use plans all over the country that are really uh, 
crafted by and, local governments. And not necessarily integrated. Not integrated. Uh, not, although we have uh, s- certain laws and policies like having protected areas, mm-hmm. uh, but you're right, it's, it's not part of a national, uh, a national policy. Yeah. There might be certain aspects of, of uh, existing laws. But what they make of that? How come? Uh, I was surprised to hear that because uh, when I was starting out as a reporter, that was 20 years ago, I was already <laughs> hearing about uh, CLUP. Yes, if I'm yes. not mistaken, that is CLUP and Tawajan, diba? Comprehensive Land Use Plan land for use local plans. governments. So eventually, wala pa rin talaga nabubo from a national level to integrate all yeah, these well, plans. No, what, yeah, what you, when you say you, you, you were already hearing of that 20 years ago. I, I would agree with you, but because there were bills already filed mm. 20 years ago to have a national land use policy. And if I may uh, mention another bill, uh, a sustainable forestry code, uh, that was also 20 years ago. Now you're asking the reason. Mm. Uh, I think it has to do with uh, removing the discretion when it comes to uh, uh, business development. <laughs> okay, it's because always you have, yeah. The usual interplay because, between business and what needs to be done. <laughs> yes, uh, because if you have a, a national land use policy, then you you really have guidelines. These are just the areas where you can do your residential. Uh, development, uh, your mm-hmm. commercial activities, and these are the areas where you have uh, permanent protected areas. Uh, these are the areas where you have forest areas. Uh, just imagine, uh, Christian, uh, our topography uh, indicates that we are a mountainous country. Mm-hmm. So uh, 50% of our country is sloping 18 degrees and above. So uh, let's com- compare our country to Japan, which is also a mountainous country. But Japan has been able to maintain uh, a very decent forest cover. But our country, uh, 50% of our country is mountainous, which requires forest cover. Uh, we have, I think, uh, 15% uh, 15% uh, forest cover right yeah. now. It's dwindling basically, despite the policies already in place. No, so, yes. I'd like to talk about the the structure of the NDRRMC, the National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council, uh, because of course this is not a perfect structure. Uh, the usual criticism is that it's just a coordinating body, uh, coordinating different agencies of government. But is there really a problem with that? Because so far we've been hearing uh, a lot of push for establishment of a dis- department of disaster resilience. So, number one, is there really a problem with the current structure that we have? Well, uh, the, the basis of the law is really to enable uh, government to really pursue uh, a whole-of-government approach. That's why you have several uh, government agencies that are asked to coordinate under that uh, coordinating uh, body. But I think the question here is uh, that uh, the uh, the responsibility and accountability mechanisms are therefore also spread out. So mm. uh, the proponents of the bill are saying that 
there has to be a more decisive uh, uh, decision making that should happen. And uh, they are also uh, suggesting that the head of that coordinating body should be uh, of a secretary rank uh, mm. uh, level. So, uh, so the, the factors for, uh, for pro proposing that uh, creation of a department is to have more uh, decision-making power, uh, more accountability, and more resources. Mm -hmm. But uh, of course, there there are ways by which you can uh, you can channel more resources, and there are also, I think, uh, proposals to elevate the responsibility of the head of that uh, coordinating council. But aside from accountability issues, what's wrong with the current structure? Because I suppose if we have a Department of Disaster Resilience, if something uh, bad happens, if someone drops the ball, you know who to blame, right? Kasalanan niya ng Secretary of the DDR. But in this case, aren't the accountabilities also clear? For example, you have the NDRMC. Let's say something goes wrong when it comes to implementing relocation projects because the infrastructure is not made available, they can actually point to the DPWH, for instance. Or let's say certain uh, uh, issues regarding health provision are not uh, properly addressed. You can blame the DOH. I mean, aren't the accountabilities yes. clear at this stage? Yes, the, the accountability would really be uh, directed towards who is the project holder. Mm -hmm. Because uh, eventually, it has to go down to what's written in the General Appropriations Act. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's really, uh, who is the uh, project holder? Uh, the proponents of the, uh, the bill creating a Department of Disaster Resilience is that uh, the department itself will be the one to undertake the project, like uh, the rehabilitation uh, and other related projects like uh, constructing uh, evacuation centers. So instead of uh, DPWH or let's say uh, currently we, we use a lot of uh, schools as mm. evacuation centers. So, so that item would, that budget item would be under DepEd. Mm. So those are the issues uh, with respect to accountability lines. So the proponents would like uh, the accountability accountability lines to be under that uh, department of uh, resilience. So, so, so in short, uh, yes. Given our experience with the NDRMC, do, uh, do we actually need a an entirely new department of disaster resilience? Uh, so there are pros and cons, cons uh, with respect to this issue. Uh, those who are uh, proposing uh, that uh, having this department is that there is, there is more uh, focus on really, uh, especially in addressing the, the big disasters that have been coming uh, our country's way over the last several years. Uh, but then again, the, uh, those uh, who are opposing this uh, are saying that, uh, well, there might be gaps again in the future because the other departments may not cooperate. So perhaps uh, one way would be to put that agency under the office of the president mm. so that uh, there would be more coordination 
And I think uh, one of the uh, issues also is that you would uh, you would create another department and you would end up uh, providing a lot of uh, plantilla items and you might just end up uh, employing more people but then not enough uh, resources for uh, disaster preparedness or disaster mitigation uh, yeah because sure, a lot of mm. a, a lot of your resources would end up paying salaries rather yeah, than yeah, uh, supporting no. projects so in short for instance you put up i think the price tag put there so far was 1.5 billion pesos if you really want to put up a department of disaster resilience. And you're right, no? A lot of it would have to be spent on salary, meaning during the budgeting, you have to spend on PS, personal services, and of course, MOE. And then perhaps there might not be enough funds to go to the actual uh, projects to address uh, rehabilitation, for instance. I have another question, but wouldn't that be uh, a duplication of existing responsibilities and jobs by other departments? For instance, at the, the new department, you say would be in charge of, let's say, uh, putting up relocation centers, uh, for instance. Uh, so far, it's already being done by the DPWH. And I assume that once that new department or if that new department is created, it would also need the help of the DPWH. Yes, that's right, uh, Christian. Uh the thing is that the the budget item might still be in DPWH, but then uh, the Department of Disaster Resilience would be the one that is really uh, uh, supervising and monitoring. So all these types of uh, permutations. Uh, perhaps if we, we look at it from a bigger policy angle, if we really want a Department of Disaster Resilience, and there are concerns, I think, by the senators, because I, looking at the bill, I think it has passed the third reading, reading of at the, the House. At the House of Representatives. So in a way, it's the Senate that is uh, uh, sitting on the bill, uh, so to or, speak. Or resistant. <laughs> because I, I heard uh, some, uh, some opinions from senators that uh, they, they are very worried about the cost mm -hmm. and uh, they are also saying that uh, let's pursue the let's look at the right sizing bill because we are uh, we're trying to abolish certain departments and yet we are creating new departments but uh, if that is the idea so why don't we look at the creation or possible creation of the Department of Disaster uh, Department of Disaster Resilience, and at the same time pursue the merger of other departments. Uh, there have been, I think, uh, already uh, proposals to merge certain departments. Uh, for example, the Department of Agriculture with DAR, and uh, if we're not thinking of abolishing the DAR altogether. Uh, so it could be a merger of DA, DAR, and DNR. And uh, from DNR, you create an environmental protection agency because uh, there seems to be conflict even in the mandate of that uh, agency because you are protecting the environment, but at the same time, you are distributing permits to... Uh, to, to exploit or utilize the environment. So why not uh, just put it in a, in a department 
where the mandate is clearer. Like you, you really uh, are meant to provide permits to use up resources. But then you need the protection agency, so more like an environmental protection agency. So are you also saying that, for instance, in the case of the DNR, it's better to remove that uh, regulatory function, so to speak, away from the DNR? Yeah, because what I see is uh, there seems to be conflict when it comes to really uh, pursuing the mandate. Are, we, are they protecting the environment or are they uh, pursuing the, the use or exploit uh, utilization of the environment? Ano so, it's uh, a contradiction you, in terms, no? Yes, a contradiction in terms. Maybe what you need is a watchdog, uh, a protection agency. Mm-hmm. But uh, so are you open? Do you, do you think this is the right move to come up with a Department of Disaster Resilience while right-sizing the other agencies of government? Yes, I I think it's more important to have a Department of Disaster Resilience compared to, let's say, maintaining the existing departments that are uh, not very clear themselves about their mandate. Uh course they this might sound to be controversial but then uh it's really a way of uh of right sizing the bureaucracy uh we have to consider that we are uh the the concept of the new normal uh yeah came even before the pandemic the new normal is about climate change so uh the uh the bigger disasters or the disastrous effects of uh, of natural events uh, we call this the extreme events mm-hmm. that are occurring at a very regular period already so just imagine uh, typhoon yolanda was just how many years ago it was 7 years ago mm-hmm. and then you have uh, typhoon rolly is also a very very huge uh, an extreme event so it means uh, I would say, Christian, that the uh, Department of Disaster Resilience, uh, even if uh, we don't have uh, exactly a department, a full-blown department, uh, perhaps something uh, similar to what some senators are saying, that it could have an elevated uh, statue, uh, status under the office of the president, but this can start a discussion of really mainstreaming uh, disaster mm. resilience. So it's not just managing the disaster because uh, when you say managing, it's manageable. Mm-hmm. It's really, uh, we have to include other terms like adapting, coping, or taming. These are all those terms that are being used in the public policy literature on the so-called wicked problems and definitely so, uh, it yes. doesn't include prevention because you cannot prevent natural dis- not natural disasters but you can mitigate the impact right and i think you it's also mitigate and prepare yeah and prepare for it and i think it's also important to to somehow remind people um, even if you try to deal with a disaster after in terms of rescue recovery rehabilitation that would cost a lot i think uh, the neda before estimated uh, there was a study by neda uh, from 2011 to 2018, more than 500 billion was spent by the government for recovery efforts, and I think a huge part of that went to recovery efforts for Yolanda. And I think around 300 uh, billion 
actually was lost because of the natural disasters during that period. So, I mean, even if you try to build a lot after every disaster, when another typhoon comes, you would still lose a lot. So there, there really is a need to come up with an integrated plan to, to deal with all these things, right? Yes. Uh, there is always a lot of resistance to resettlement or relocation. But I think that that's more logical. Uh, people keep on rebuilding in the same places where mm-hmm. they, they, uh, they were uprooted precisely because of the disaster. Uh, that's why there is really a need to, to plan this better. In a way, build back better. But uh, uh, people would need, need a lot of support because they don't, they would lose their, for example, their land titles. Uh, there might still be remnants of their houses so they can rebuild on, on those same places. But if these are very, uh, very dangerous places already because of climate change, uh, because of sea level rise, uh, coastal communities uh, have been there for, they would say, these, these are the places of their ancestors. But then because of climate change, uh, the, uh, the, the, the level of the sea level rise is happening. So entire villages may have to be relocated and that would require really very sustained planning on the part of government. Okay. And it should be a whole-of-government approach. Mm-hmm. Now, finally, Professor Magno, talking about uh, mainstreaming uh, disaster resilience, mitigation, uh, and, of course, management. Um, what else should be done at this stage? For example, you cannot just leave everything up to the government, right? Uh, or even to the local government officials. Schools have to do a lot of things. Also, families also need to prepare and be more aware I mean, where do we stand so far in terms of mainstreaming this issue, this very important issue? And what should we do still in the coming months or years? I think uh, we have to mainstream uh, not just in, uh, in planning, budgeting, but also in uh, creating new jobs in the disaster resilience. Uh, we create an industry on disaster resilience. Uh, so new jobs should be... Uh, uh, emerging from disaster resilience, like doing vulnerability studies, creating new technologies. In fact, uh, Christian, there are already uh, technologies created by universities on uh, uh, local climate uh, modeling, local climate uh, forecasting. Uh, the new design of that, houses, diba? Yes, yeah. even the design of houses, uh, even design of schools. Yeah. Mm. Because uh, we, we need to carry on uh, schooling even uh, right now we are we are having schools uh, in our houses. So we need to adapt, we need to innovate. So uh, it's good that you mentioned the role of universities. Uh, uh, this kind of uh, effort requires a lot of uh, thinking through. It, it means thinking out of the box. So uh, we understand that uh, local government units, our mayors and governors are doing a lot of decision-making. So uh, it would require a lot of support from the emergence of new technologies, new ways of doing things, uh, from the whole of government approach that I was talking about, which means uh, cooperation between national, local, and within the local uh, 
at the local level, there should be horizontal cooperation. Mm-hmm. So it would require uh, collaboration in terms of using new technologies, uh, uh, new new resources, new personnel. So uh, uh, under a new policy on disaster resilience, you may need a lot of uh, planning expertise uh, in your city hall, in your municipal hall. Uh, this requires a lot of uh, data analytics and data data analysis toolkits. And more importantly, so, uh, I think this has to be institutionalized, right? So you don't have to depend on any incumbent leader who will be moving from uh, one position to another after every election, right? So, I mean, there has to be yeah. institutionalization of this. And this would provide the uh, uh, toolkits, guidelines for, for succeeding leaders. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you are building uh, institutions of, of resiliency. Okay. Well said. Well, Professor uh, Francisco Magno, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, I hope uh, our listeners, of course, our viewers on YouTube, uh, will learn a lot from this uh, from this discussion, especially in terms of dealing with natural disasters here in the Philippines. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you, also. Okay, so that's uh, that's all for this week's episode of our Facts First with Christian Esguera podcast. Don't forget that this is available on YouTube and also on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. See you again next week for another edition of our Facts First podcast. Thank you.